Swami is going to be speaking from uh, his translation of Bhagavad Gita, which we have some books here, if anybody would like, after the program, um, you can talk to me and I can show you some. Uma jnana timirandasya jnananjana salakaya chakshuru militam yena tasmai shi gurave namaha ajunolambita bujo kanaka vadatu sankirtanai kapitaro kamalaya takshu vishvambaro dvijagaro Yugodharma palo, bandejagat priyakaro, karunabhutaro, bandeshi krishna chaitanya, nittanando sahodito, gorodaye pushpavanto chitro sangdo tamanudo. E krishna karuna sindhu, dinabandhu jagatpate, gopesha gopika kanta, Rakanta namostude, tapta kanchana gurangi radhe brindamanishwari, vishabhanu sute devi pranamami hari priye. Shri Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara ki jai. Good evening, come a little closer, please. Thank you. So, I'd like to thank our hosts for inviting me here. And uh, I think I've been here, what, one time before? Twice. 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 Okay. Losing count already. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I've been here in North Carolina now for, what, four or five days and um, nights. And we've been speaking from Bhagavad Gita. And I've been speaking from the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is, I suppose you could... We translated as Song of God, and um, and it consists of 18 chapters, and the ninth chapter is, of course, then in the middle, and um, in the middle is where the the essence, the secret, the treasure is found, and the title is appropriate of the chapter is appropriately Rajaguya Yoga. Rajaguya. Raj means king and guya means secret so it's the hidden king of secrets something like it's let's say the heart of the gita which is where we keep our secrets in our hearts and um, it's the ninth chapter comes in, in in the middle six chapters so the middle six chapters are dealing with the theology of the text first six are dealing with more of the yoga psychology and the last six with more of the metaphysics of the text. But both the middle, uh, the end, beginning six and the end six are are leaning into and back to the middle six to reflect on them from a psychological point of view, from a metaphysical point of view. So that's where we are, middle of the ninth, well, the beginning of the ninth chapter. And we've only gotten to discuss a couple of verses so far, so there's a lot to be said in each each one of them. The first three verses of the chapter are a glorification, if you will, of the of the knowledge to uh, be revealed in the chapter. So the setting is 
Krishna speaking to his friend Arjuna and he wants to get his attention. So he glorifies, praises the, uh, the, the knowledge of the chapter, to, as I said, to get his attention. And it's important that he do so because this is a very special kind of knowledge. The implication of which is that there are different, there are different types of knowledge. And in a general sense, I suppose it could be thought that material knowledge was not so special and that spiritual knowledge was, was special. And I think that's, that's true. It might be so to the extent that we could call material knowledge ignorance in comparison to spiritual knowledge. Material knowledge being really about how to better ourselves and our position within the world. Knowledge that we can put on our agenda to foster our own sense of what life's about for us or what it could be or what we are in terms of our um, you know, national sense of self, family sense of self, racial sense of self, sexual sense of self, and, and so on. And largely it's knowledge about uh, acquisition, how to acquire and thereby be, become more. And conversely, the spiritual knowledge is not about how to acquire, but the futility of acquiring. And then the fact that we are full in and of ourselves without the necessity of any add-ons, so to speak. And so, by comparison, it can be said that one is, is uh, material knowledge is ignorance and spiritual knowledge is, is, is actual knowledge. But here the, uh, the subject of the Gita in this chapter is about an even more special kind of knowledge, if you will. Because the general spiritual knowledge has been discussed already in the first six chapters. It's largely knowledge about ourselves. There's a Upanishadic dictum that's quite famous. Some of you may know, tat tuam asi, tat tuam asi, tat and tuam asi. It means you are that. So the first six chapters are largely about you or us. What, what we are, and we are that. So it doesn't go that far. It talks about what we are, but not in relation to that, whatever that is. But the middle six chapters are about that. It may also be rendered that Tattvamasi, uh, that you are his. So that might give us some more of another way of thinking about it. it might make it a little more clear. <laughs> That we belong to somebody, and that uh, our identity is is part of um, a relationship. That we will know ourselves, our fullness, in the context of of a, of a relationship. And so, within the context of spiritual knowledge, I want to say that this now this theological section, which starts to speak about about the Godhead with whom we have relationship, with whom we are related, with whom if we don't understand that connection, that relation, we, we don't understand ourselves, it becomes more complex, the knowledge. In other words, if I'm to say to you that there's a difference between yourself and your, and your body and your mind and your consciousness and matter is uh, unconscious and uh, 
kind of the soul body kind of idea. That tells us about something about, about ourselves. It's a, it's a spiritual kind of knowledge, but um, it's not, uh, according to the Gita, it's not the whole, the whole picture. And, um, and then, within the context of that, speaking about that, or about him, with, of whom we are a part, with whom we have a relationship, in connection with whom we will, we will know ourselves fully and comprehensively. Within discussion about that, about him, this, uh, this middle chapter tries to go e- even very deeply. So therefore it's called Rajavidya, in other words, or the king of knowledge, or Rajaguya, the king of secrets. Very kind of special, deep knowledge. And interestingly enough, what uh, that knowledge is, is something that is often not thought of as knowledge at all uh, by people. But you have to think a little deeply. And that knowledge is bhakti. Now that's kind of, in, in circles of Vedanta and Hinduism, that might sound odd, perhaps, Knowledge and bhakti, gyan and bhakti are two different things. It's often thought that bhakti fosters gyan, knowledge, and then it it retires. It's a means to to knowing, at which point it it retires itself. Knowledge itself is said to be a means to enlightenment upon where it it retires, for that matter. But here what Krishna is explaining is something very different very different idea. He's saying that because knowledge does beget, or excuse me, because bhakti or devotion does beget knowledge, he wants us to stop and think about that for a minute. If bhakti gives jnana, if devotion gives knowledge, then what else does she have? Is the idea. She has knowledge within her. She's pregnant with knowledge. That knowledge is her child. She gives birth to knowledge. We don't read that bhakti gives birth, jnana gives birth to bhakti. It is not taught that knowledge gives rise to devotion, but sometimes it's taught that bhakti gives rise to knowledge. In fact, it's always taught like that. But some people think that the fruit of bhakti, therefore, is knowledge, but Krishna is saying here the fruit of bhakti is bhakti. And that's highest knowledge. Bhakti is a kind of knowledge. Therefore, he says in the previous verse, the verse we spoke this morning of Rajavidya, Rajaguham. He says to Arjun, in glorifying the knowledge of this chapter, I'm going to speak to you about the king of knowledge. Again, he already talked about spiritual knowledge in a general sense, so this is something special. And he says Rajaguham. It's Guham means secret, so it's a very secret kind of uh, knowledge. So it's a kind of bhakti, even a kind of devotion that he's going to speak about that's very um, secret. The kind of devotion, the idea here is, that reveals something about himself that nothing else will reveal, that will bring us in, uh, in proximity to that which we are related to. A proximity that, that no other type of knowledge Will, will, will bring us. There's a nice statement by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who says, Shrotram api Upanishadam dure harikatamrita. He said the aphorisms of the Upanishads, the dictums there, 
They generally speak about the Absolute in a very general way, by way of equating ourselves with the Absolute. Because in this world, if there's anything that most resembles God, it's us. Because we're conscious, consciousness, and we're conscious. And matter, of course, is inanimate and unconscious and gains life when we lend ourselves to it. We animate the world, so to speak. So we're like God. There's a likeness between ourselves and God. But Mahaprabhu says these dictums that speak about the likeness between ourselves and God and the, the oneness that we have with God, these things don't bring us very close to God. Not, he said, like harikata. Dure harikata mita. Dure means far. These dictums of the Upanishad, while they bring us away from our identification with matter, and in that sense, close to God, while they bring us away from the false variety of the world that's derived from our uh, sensual and mental, sensual perception and mental contemplation about that perception, that, that division that, that the senses and mind create of yours and mine, of happy and sad, heat and cold, good and bad, your good is my bad, and my sad is your happy, and all this... Those statements, those bakyams, those uh, mantrams, those dictums that cause us to think in a different way and take us away from that false variety that gets in the way of the unity that we sense that life is really about, they bring us close, by bringing us away from that, they bring us close, closer to ourselves and because we are like God, closer to God thereby. But dure harikatamita. They leave us far in the dust in terms of coming into the proximity of that which we are related to, or he to whom we belong. Uh, far in the, in the dust in terms of the proximity, the nearness, the intimacy that we can uh, experience in relation to our source, to our origin, that is a result of harikata. Harikata means, uh, that's what this chapter is about. Krishna here is speaking about himself. Therefore, he says, in the beginning, verse first, he says, idam dute guyatamam pravakshami anusuyave. Anusuyave means without envy. He says, now this is a special knowledge, guyatamam, not guyam, but guyam uttamam. Guyam uttam. Most secret knowledge. Uh, and I'm going to speak it to you because you don't have any envy of me. It means, now Krishna says, I'm going to talk about myself. And if I just sit here and talk about myself, unless people have some understanding of me, have some love for me, have some faith in me, are not envious of me to give it a, pick of it in a contrasting way, then they're going to find trouble with me just talking about myself. They're going to want to get out of the room. This guy's really self-centered, they'll say. I am this, I am that, and the world moves under my direction, and, I, and so on and so forth. Of course, then we have to think there has to be a center. It's more appealing, perhaps, to speak about the means of spiritual attainment, which is about sacrifice giving. And so when people speak about themselves and are self-centered and about enjoying and uh, 
and so forth. It's rather off-putting. And a person asked me not long ago that that uh, someone had said to them that in Christianity the God is sacrificing, and in your Hinduism the God is is a despot. He's uh, just an enjoyer. Oh, so he person wanted to say thereby that uh, we've got the real thing here, <laughs> and you've got you're really out there. But I replied, I said that if there is a sacrificing manifestation of the Godhead that embodies self-sacrifice and giving, there has to be another end where the giving is given to the taker, the enjoyer, the recipient on the other end. And if he is truly so, the true enjoyer, the true center and so forth, then by giving our energy to that center, we'll be nourished thereby, just like the stomach is the center, so to speak, of the of the, where the food should go in our body. And if it goes there, then mystically it's distributed throughout the body in a way that it wouldn't be by any other part of the body. So there is a center. And by its taking or conducting, its acting as, as it should, as the center, as the enjoyer, everyone is benefited by that, especially those who take advantage of it, acknowledge it, and give themselves to the center. So, of course, we have our and we also have our sacrificing examples within our sect also of great saints and so on and so forth as as the Christ is, a, is an example of sacrificing in, in Christianity and this is again we teach about the means and the ends not that Christianity doesn't it also does so here Krishna is speaking about himself and so he tells Arjun this this is kind of special i don't take i don't say this to anybody I don't speak as I'm going to speak about myself here to just anybody because not everybody has ears to hear that. They want to be the center. It means also that Arjuna is, is, has come to a point in the discussion where his heart is soft. And uh, he's already understood something about Tvam, as I said, Tatvamasi. And what's taught in the first six chapters about you is that you're very small. You're, in, you're insignificant in the scheme of things. But that's only a partial picture because, again, in relation to the center, even the smallest part takes on great meaning, at least if it, if it points itself in the direction of the center, in the eyes of the center. So, at any rate, Arjun has been humbled, so to speak, He's, he's understood in the presence of Krishna something about his um, conditioning and something about his prospect at the same time. What he could be, what his potential is, and what he is now. And the contrast between the two, it's rather humbling. So Krishna's got him in a very teachable moment here, if you will, and so he wants to tell him something very secret. Guhyatamam. And he says, you're qualified for that. So it's not just for anybody and everybody. Not unless we are here talking about it to everybody who's come. Uh, but to those who will appreciate, those who can capture something more, they will depend on the qualification that he himself has set forth here. We have some, some, some faith in some general way. Maybe something good will come here tonight. Some spiritual talk. I have some faith. I'll come. They're going to talk about spiritual things, about yoga, about God, about, uh, and some may have more understanding and so forth and so on. So, Having 
qualified the speaker who will take the most from it and gather the most from that, he begins to describe the knowledge, this Rajavidyam, Rajaguyam, he says, he says, Pavitram idam uttamam. This idam is Pavitram uttam. It's a kind of knowledge that can uh, is, is comprehensively purifying. And the purification that it, it um, affects is the karmic repercussions in our life. The debts, so to speak, that we've incurred by, by our taking, and that which is the environment that's chasing us, so to speak. Having taken from it, now it's owed and it's after us and we have a debt. We've, in our material life, by taking, we move apparently uh, in a forwardly, but actually in a backward way. We incur a debt. It's like if we borrow money from the bank, it looks like we've got a lot of money, but we have a debt greater than the amount we've borrowed. So we've gone into uh, the negative numbers, so to speak. So to come out of that, to clear the slate, to come to zero, that is progress. It's kind of a full sense of zero. But here the topic is the positive numbers. Are there any positive numbers? Is there any content to the nature of, uh, of, of transcendence? Is there anything to do there? So he's talking about knowledge, but he's talking about not the knowledge that is, re- that is used to attain mukti, liberation, salvation, but the knowledge by which the world, the liberated world functions. And that is a knowing that is pregnant, if you will, uh, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is in the womb of love. In other words, if you love, well, you know what to do. Right? It's kind of an essential type of knowing, no extra baggage type of knowing. Love gives a comprehensive type of knowing. It satisfies one, after all. That's what we're trying to know for, isn't it? <laughs> to become satisfied, to become happy. And the message here, in a very simple sense, is that we can exercise our brain in many, many ways to try to understand. But we're only trying to really understand how to be happy, how to be fulfilled in life. We can access, we can doubt even if there is such fulfillment. There's so much room for that if it exists. Or conjure up different ways in which we might think we will arrive at that. But the nature of Perfection, perfect knowledge that begets perfect happiness is such that it can only be arrived at by a perfect method, not by an imperfect method. And tarko pratishtanat, pratishtanat. Tarko, reasoning is inconclusive. You'll get no real standing by reasoning. Any, for any reasoning, there's a counter-reasoning. And if you say, well, Tarko that reasoning has a counter-reasoning. I say, yes, that's true. That's our point. <laughs> it is circular. You go nowhere. This is from the sutras, Vedanta Sutra. By reasoning, you actually get nowhere in terms of its fence-sitting type of affair. So he's saying that this knowledge is, is love. It's a funny idea, in a way, if we think of... It's, it's a doing, because knowledge is often a not-doing. We don't think we have do knowledge. Let's do knowledge tonight. What do you say? Let's do some knowledge. No, we don't. The activity and knowledge, they're, they're separate. And, and in, in the real sense, 
our activity, our movement in the material world in relation to temporary things, which is in pursuit of enduring happiness, is a folly. Right? If our happiness is derived from things that don't endure, and it is enduring happiness that we seek, then we're really going about it in the wrong way. So, in a general sense, then, a person of spiritual knowledge stops doing. That's the difference between gyan and karma. Who has gyan doesn't have to do anything. Doesn't feel the necessity to acquire anything. Feels full in and of himself or herself. But, there's another kind of movement. This is the point, right? Even in material life, we know that we can't really rest until we found love. And when we find it, then another kind of movement starts. So this is what Krishna is talking about. This movement, the movement that, f- that fuels, that energizes, that, that uh, it has the, juris- the knowledge that, that by which that um, transcendence comes to life. The life of transcendence. After all, Krishna is the heart of the Absolute. This isn't about shanti, shanti, shanti. Ah, peace, relief after being chased for so long by your own desires and extinguishing them and just relaxing forever, quietly. That's a kind of knowledge too. That's a kind of, we think, like beginning of spiritual knowledge. No. This is a kind of knowledge that animates Brahman, that brings Brahman to life. Brahman is light. Maya's darkness. And the knowledge of this chapter sheds light on the light. That's why I say it's very, he says, it's Rajavidyam, Rajaguyam. Ordinary spiritual knowledge sheds light on darkness. This knowledge, it's Raj, Raj, also the, the verbal root from which this word comes, it means to shine also. It's a shining kind of knowledge, it's a bright knowledge. It is the Surup Shakti. Of Bhagwan that energizes Brahman, that makes, that, as I say, sheds light on Brahman, on the, on the innermost recess, the core of the heart, of the Absolute, makes him dance. This is Krishna, dancing, under the tutelage of Radha, and Radha is, the personification of, of bhakti, the fullest bhakti. Fullest love, the consort of Krishna, the embodiment of love of Krishna that corresponds with Krishna. The love of Krishna and Krishna are one. And enough difference for there to be a dynamic uh, interaction between the two. Love is, after all, one and different at the same time, isn't it? There's unity and difference within love. You and I become we. That's the oneness. But we're both there at the same time. So, he says, this knowledge, Rajavidya, Rajuguyam, Pavitram, Idam, Uttam, it's completely purifying. I talked about this a little bit this morning. Purification means, as I said, to relieve us of the karmic debt that we have that's burdening us, that's making our life unbecoming, that makes us a taker. It's a big sign that says, I'm a taker. I'm under the influence of karma. I'm a thief. I'm a, I've exploited. And for what? For some sense of what life is about that's I've gathered between my ears. 
How much can you find out there? We can bring a lot of information in there and churn it around and so forth. But that's what it will do. It will go around and one day you'll be this, one day you'll be that, and you'll never have any standing. Tarko patishtanat. And real happiness. And there's no giving involved there either. It's a subtle kind of taking. Taking by material acquisition, that's obvious. That's, you know, blue-collar crime. Or that's armed robbery. It's obvious. But taking knowledge only. Knowledge is actually to be given. That's a white-collar crime, something like that. That's embezzlement. <laughs> you, you take the knowledge. Why? Why are people taking knowledge? So they don't have to do anything. Just like if you have a degree, if you have a doctorate, then you don't have to work as much, right? You can make more money and do less, at least physical labor. The more the internal organ of mind, intellect is active, the less the physical aspect, dimension of ourself will be active. We have a psychic and a physical dimension of our material self. So spiritually speaking, if we see through knowledge the futility of material acquisition, we even identify that I've been a thief by taking. And we stop from taking through knowledge of the impermanence of the world. You take something, but it's, you know, you take it, but it disappears, and you paid for it, too. If you buy something and then it disappears, you still have to pay the credit card bill, even if it disappears. And it does. There are changes forms. You no longer want it anymore, but still you have to pay for it. So all of our uh, taking, what do we get? Why? We don't get anything. Uh, our acquisition of material things, it, it's, it's, uh, there's no gain there. So anyway, someone comes to wisdom about this, right? Knowledge. And so this knowledge course, has a corresponding, a corresponding activity, if you will, of, of sorts. It's a negative activity. It's called vairagya, detachment, which is not about moving at all. You move back from all those things, attachments, and you do nothing. It's a lazy man's life. To sit forever, peacefully. But the problem is this, from the point of view of the Gita. As I said, Tattvamasi, Tattvamasi. You are his. You have a relationship. You are full identity is will be understood in the context of a relationship with the center. You are not the center. You are on the circumference. You may turn towards the center, be drawn into the center, but you don't become the center. What does that mean? It means we have something to do. We may have been doing the wrong thing and moving in terms of acquisition, and we may have a, a, a cell and a sentence for that, another body, another life, repercussions of our taking in this life. If we stop taking, then you won't have another life. But what's to, for, what's to fuel it then? What fuels this life is our attachments. We are our attachments. We are our desires. So if our desires are extinguished, then... What is, what's left to fuel another life in this world? That's why we say, that's why we say, for example, reincarnation. It's kind of very practical. 
you're here now. And what does it mean to be here now? We could ask Ramdas, I guess, to wrote a book about it, but to be here now means that we are we are attached in some way, and we have an identity based on that attachment. Right? So if that which we're attached to disappears, but the attachment doesn't disappear, what what leads us to believe that we'll go anywhere else than where we are? Because we where we are is our attachments. Understand? We're a unit of consciousness and we're attached. We've identified with things. And um, by way of that uh, identifying with things, we've identified ourselves. Again, even our material sense of self is relational. Our identity is based on relationship. We have a particular relationship with different manifestations of matter and thereby we've defined ourselves. Our self is a product of attachment. If we do away with attachment and desire, then what's left? Nothing to fuel another life. But if we don't do away with desire, we can be sure there'll be another life. What energizes the material world is that desire. So you'll think, well, the body will die. Who's to say you're going anywhere? You will endure. We are analyzing it in this way. What you are is desire. Can you find me a man on his deathbed who doesn't have desire? That's what the world is about. So if you have desire, if you are a unit of desire, then this is where you belong, here. Now, if you have no desire, then what? If you've ended desire, desire in relation to things and so forth, then you can rest. Then you don't have to take birth again. That's true. But there's more to life than that. In other words, as I say, we have something to do in relation to him in relation to that, that you, we, are, as we have. In bhakti, you see, in bhakti, in the school of devotion, we grow, we progress by sangha, by attachment, to sadhus. And in jnanmarg, we grow by detachment. We are growing by attachment to the right thing, to something that endures. If we can attach ourselves to that which endures, then we have an, an, an enduring identity. This is the idea of bhakti. So bhakti, the low end of bhakti then, the very low end, pavitram uttam, he says. The low end of bhakti is that it removes all the negative, the covering of karma. And, it, and because it's pavitram uttam, it removes prarabdha also. That means the karma that is in full bloom that our life is constituted of. Gyan, in Gyanmarg, they don't teach like this. No. Gyanmarg says, the, the path of knowledge, as opposed to the path of bhakti, says, knowledge can destroy all your karma, except for the parabdha, that which is already manifest. It's already manifest, so how you stop it? It's already playing itself out. But bhakti, Krishna defines it here, this knowledge he's talking about, this is how we know it is bhakti. He says, pavitram uttam, it can remove even the prarabdha, the manifest karma. This is a big topic. I spoke a little bit about it this morning. But we have karma that is unmanifest, waiting to bear fruit, waiting to get its satisfaction from us, and that which is getting its satisfaction now. In bhakti school, someone who has eyes to see can see 
when, who doesn't may say, I'm not making much progress. But the teacher may say, oh, today so many unmanifest karmas were removed that you will never have to experience some invisible progress, so to speak. But it has the power beyond that, as I say, to cure a cold. Like once you get a cold, what do you do? Oh, I got a cold. There's no cure. I just got to live it out six days, drink fluids, get lots of rest. You can't stop it. They haven't been able to cure the common cold, just to give an example. So our prabhda is something like that. We've got a cold now. so But this is the cure for the cold then. Bhakti, Krishna is saying. It can cure, the, it can cure your prabhda, the manifest karma. Trans, it's, this is a very uh, extraordinary idea. If, the more we're familiar with the tradition of Hinduism, the more we can appreciate what Krishna is saying here. He says, this is a special kind of knowledge. This is a secret kind of knowledge. It has such power. And it is pavitram idam uttamam pratyaksha vagamam dharmam. It is dharmic. Knowledge, jnana is not dharmic. Jnana is the end of dharma. Dharma means to act righteously in the world. It's a good thing. But if you have knowledge, that brings the end of action. As I said, that brings detachment. So this knowledge, he says, is, is, is dharmic. So again, it's a very different, special kind of knowledge. It's supradharmic. Pratyakshavagamam dharmam. It's directly perceivable. Susukam kartam. It's happily performed. He's in, again, he says, let's do knowledge tonight. It's, a, it's an active kind of thing. Susukam kartam and avyayam. It's everlasting. That means... It's, post, it's a post-liberated type of knowledge that he's talking about. The knowledge that fuels the liberated world and makes it go round. And what is that go-round of the liberated world? It's just different, just the opposite of what makes the material world go round. We call it samsara. It's circular. Material life is circular. You never get anywhere. They call it, you know, the, the classic rat race where the you know, rat's on the little things going round and round and round, never getting anywhere. And Leela, that is a movement of the liberated world, and it is moving in a circle also, round and round and round, again and again and again, but ever new. It is the play of the Absolute. Krishna wants to say that it's true that if you're running on empty, you have wants, needs, and desires. You have to get busy. Our identification with matter makes us feel that we're empty, so we have to go and get and collect. But if you're full, then why move? So therefore, stillness, quietude, peace. But here in this chapter, what he wants to say is something else. He says, there's a kind of movement that comes from fullness. If you're truly static and full, then there's a a dynamism to that fullness that causes you to move not out of necessity, out of need, but out of joy, out of fullness of joy. This is Leela. And what fuels that Leela is this knowledge, this bhakti. And now we come to the third verse. He says, Ashradhana purusha dharmasyasya param tapa aprapyamam nivartante mrityu samsara vartmani He's talking about the knowledge that fuels that the life, the life of the Absolute, the romantic life of the Absolute. What a charming idea. 
And of course, this is depicted by the mystics as Radha and Krishna, the romantic life of the Absolute. What the knowledge that is bhakti, the knowledge of love that fuels that, that makes it go round, he's, he said things about, it's very extraordinary, he said things about this knowledge, this bhakti here in this chapter, that makes people think, is it possible? Is such a thing? So he says, Ashradhana Purusha. Arjuna is thinking, gosh, this sounds great what you're talking about. Why doesn't everybody just take it up? He says, susukam kartam. It's happy, it's, it's everlasting, it's special, secret, I'm giving it to you. So Krishna says, ashwaradhana. As people are anasuya, non-envious, and then full of faith, thereby qualified to take it up, there are those who are ashwaradhana, who don't have faith. They don't believe what I'm saying. They think, this is too far out. It couldn't be. After all, he says, susu kartum. means it's very easily performed, this knowledge. If you want to do this knowledge, it's very easy, he says. How do you do this knowledge? He's going to tell you later on. He's going to, he's going to give an example later on in the chapter. He says, patram pushpam palam doyam yume bhakti prayachati. How easy is that? He says, if you have a fruit or a flower or water, which you can't exist without, you offer a drop to me, that's all. That's bhakti. That's all? You offer some water? That's all you have to do? Yeah, he said, with your heart. You put your heart into that. What it means is, if you have nothing, you have to have water at least to live. So water will be dear to you. So offer what's dear to you, to me. That will endear you to me. So we all have some. We shouldn't just think, we read that verse in the Gita, say, well, I'll just offer some water. There you go. Some water. Offer my water to Krishna. It's easy. <laughs> it means, <laughs> offer what's dear to you. That's nah, maybe a little harder. But it's not hard to, to, the process isn't hard to do it, so to speak, but to do it with, your, just to offer some water or something that you have, but to do it with your heart. He's really asking everything, isn't he? But he's, but, uh, but to hear about me, to chant about me, these are, you know, simple things. These are things that people are doing anyway. Hearing, they're singing, they're dancing, they're, they're eating and so forth. And so he's saying the whole range of human activities, you do them for me, for my glorification, for my satisfaction. It's, a, it's simple in that way. In comparison to Gyanmarg, it's very easy. Because for Gyanmarg, you have to be qualified. You have to have sacrificed fruits of your work, that the ingress of mystic knowledge may come into you in your heart. You can sit. Why? Because you don't have any desire to move. You've been, you become free from desire. There's some qualification to tread Gyanmarg. And Karma Marg, or the Dharma Marg, oh, it's very hard to do that. All the righteous duties you have to do and all the ones you don't do, it's really complicated. And bhakti, Krishna says, oh, it's very easy. Man. Forget all that stuff. And anything that can come from Dharma, being Dharma, anything that comes from Gyan, that will come from this bhakti. And so much more. So it's a huge statement. I mean, in yoga, yoga was the subject of the last chapter of, this, of, the, of the first six. After just talk, talking a whole chapter about Astanga Yoga, Krishna ends by saying, speaking about bhakti, bhakti yoga, he said. Then he goes into it here in these, these six chapters. What is he saying? 
He said, oh, that's such a complicated thing. You've got to sit a certain height and not too high, not too low, and not eat too much, not eat uh, enough or too little. And there's uh, so many rules. It's a mechanical process. It's, it's, it's fruitful, but it doesn't really bring one very close to me comparatively by this simple process. And it's such a simple thing. Anybody can do it. You don't have any pre-qualification except faith, which comes from good company. But keep good company <laughs> without faith will grow. That's for sure. So people think, how can it be? How is it possible? Yoga is arduous. Gyan is a very difficult path. The karma mark is very difficult. If you know these paths from Hindu, it's very, they're very difficult paths compared to bhakti. How the easiest path can bring the greatest result? Why not? So people have some doubt about that, you see. Therefore, they can't take up bhakti. They need good sangha, good company. And then they can begin to take it up. Faith, he says. Faith is a very tangible thing. You know, we often think of faith as something which is the uh, is um, something we resort to when we have a lack of knowledge. Oh, you don't know, then you just have faith. And if you know enough, then you won't have any faith anymore. Hmm? So faith is often... <laughs> It's often seen like this. Right? Oh, they have faith. If they knew more, they wouldn't. But actually, this is not a proper understanding of faith. Faith is really an aspect of, uh, of, of knowledge. It's an aspect, or, or no, I should say, excuse me, sorry. Knowledge is an aspect of faith. Knowledge is really an aspect of faith only. In other words, knowledge... Reasoning, let's say. Okay, let's talk about knowledge in terms of reasoning. People think that if you don't have good reasoning, then you have faith. Or that faith is an absence of lack of reasoning. But I want to say that reason is an aspect of faith, actually. Because by reason, we can know something theoretically. But knowing something theoretically doesn't necessarily constitute acting in terms of that understanding. Faith, on the other hand, the implication of faith is that it's an active, it's in the old world, faith meant it was an act of the heart. It was, it was a, uh, a doing, a rising to the occasion. It was an answering to truth, to acting in relation to truth, not just thinking about it. You understand? So by reason you could think about it, but faith is the act of participating in it. And by participating in it, then a kind of knowing can result that reasoning about it will never uh, afford us. So faith is a very tangible um, thing. There's a world of doubt, no doubt. Here we are. <laughs> so Descartes said, I doubt, therefore I, I know I must be. But there has a corresponding world of faith where there's no doubt. And, this, and faith means movement. Therefore, Thakur Bhakti Binod, in our tradition, he equated faith, shraddha, with sharanagati, with doing. Kordare, I think, is the Latin from which the word faith is derived. It's an act of the heart. It's, it's, a, it's an embracing of the truth. It's a call to action. And reasoning is a fence-sitting affair only. It's sitting outside of the bottle of honey. You'll never taste it like that. 
you know, there's logos and there's mytho mythos and uh, faith is all full of mythological, ritualistic invisibles and it's a different language and uh, and you think you have to validate it by reason in order to take it up, but you don't have to validate it to take it up by reason. It does. It, it, uh, neither should it be taken um, up uh, blindly, so to speak. We should see the wisdom in the knowledge, if you will, of acting in faith. There's something that it can afford us that thinking about the subject cannot. So Krishna is calling on us here for that. He's saying, he says, I'm going to speak about myself, and Arjuna says this, is very interesting, so interesting. Arjuna's got it, in other words. He's got it. So he thinks, why don't people just take this up? Krishna says, this is the answer. They haven't had association enough which will be contagious to foster this faith is a kind of a confidence. Faith is a confidence. It's a kind of a knowing. After all, Krishna says in the Gita in another place, and later on he says, Shraddhayam Purushaha, a person is their faith. Faith is required for any action. So, when faith is uh, suspended, then so is life. And we have, without faith, we're in a suspended animation. We can't go forward. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Doubting is one way to go through the world, but it's really a proceed with caution type of approach. You understand? If you, if you move through the world by doubting only, that's, that cannot be the homeland. In homeland, there's no doubting. We move from the heart. In a foreign land, we may wonder, I don't know. I don't speak the language. I have doubt if that person, he, he, he said that, maybe he's talking about me. Or we go in the store and we look in a jar, what's in, the, what's in this? Do I want to eat this or not? What is, I have a doubt. I'm moving with trepidation, with doubt.